Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the anthology White Sails Shaking, edited by Ira Henry Freeman. We are on the seventh part of the reading, and we're starting Story 6. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel, where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. 6. When You Carry On Too Long by William Washburn Nutting Bill Nutting was one of those deep-sea yachtsmen who came out of the dry prairies of the Midwest. Somehow, he became editor of the magazine Motorboat, had the 45-foot catch Typhoon built, and sailed her from New York to England and back in 1920. On the return passage, crossing the Roaring Forties in November, the ship was knocked down and two of the crew were barely rescued from the sea. Nutting's mate was the young Uffer Fox, later one of the world's leading yacht designers. Fox complained that Typhoon was designed on motorboat lines. Others criticised Nutting for running before the gale too long. On the next Atlantic crossing, Nutting attempted. He was not so lucky. Sailing westward on another yacht in 1924, he and two companions disappeared without a trace. This is the story of the escape from tragedy on the first cruise. When I went on deck at 3am Wednesday, November the 17th, the wind had hauled around nearly to southwest, and it was again blowing hard and raining. It was Dillaway's trick, and before taking the wheel, I got Fox up and we lowered the trysail and shifted it to the starboard side. There were several wicked rain squalls during the four hours I was at the wheel, but not expecting another gale, I hauled in one of the lines which were still trailing astern. At seven o'clock, Jim relieved me at the wheel, turning it over to Fox at 9am, and taking it again from 11 until 1. During these six hours, the wind strengthened, and by one o'clock, when I went on again, we could see that we were in for something even worse than the northeaster of the day before. A new and bigger sea had made up over the remains of the old one, causing a confused condition that was worse than anything we had yet encountered. The wind, unlike the steady blow of Tuesday, came in a succession of hard punches, howling and cold and carrying with it the tops of the seas that stung like birdshot. The effect was that of a driving blizzard, and the hills and valleys of water were grey and streaked with the foam of broken crests. Bending a heavy iron pail to the end of our second line, we put this over the stern again. This checked us a bit and helped the steering, but it was only a temporary help. As the wind increased, it was clear that we could not carry the trysail much longer without losing it. I shouted to the boys below to break out the sea anchor and the storm jib, which I thought we might need as a trysail on the mizzen to hold her head into it. While I steered, Jim and Fox rigged up a bridle and lashed the shears in the mouth of the bag, which Charles kept from going overboard by the weight of his body. The quarter-inch line to be used with the sea anchor was already rove through the hose on the end of the bowsprit, and the two parts of it had been led aft, one outside and one inside, and lashed to the shrouds to act as a lifeline. When these lashings had been cut and a pig of ballast had been made fast to one of the arms of the sea anchor, all that was necessary was to watch our chance, luff up into the wind, lower the trysail, throw the bag overboard, pay out gradually from the coil in the cockpit with a couple of turns about a quarter bit, 
and then trust to luck. If we found that the sea anchor was unable to hold her head into it, then we planned to rig the storm jib to the mizzen and flatten it hard down to act as a weather vane. I don't think it would have stayed there long, but we meant to try it anyhow. After carefully rehearsing our parts, Jim and Fox were instructed to go forward, put lifelines about their waists and lower the trysail as I luffed her into the wind. Fox had already reached the mainmast and Jim had jumped out of the cockpit into the lee waterway when a big sea came over the port quarter, going completely over me at the wheel, taking my sou'wester with it and burying Fox, who clutched the mast with his arms and legs up to his shoulders. Jim had caught the mizzen rigging and shouting down to me through the racket, That was a hell of a big one, skipper! But he started forward again, clawing his way along the handrail. It was just at this moment that the big crash came. Possibly we broached too, I can't say, and it doesn't really matter, for the big unstable brute that came down on us would have swamped us no matter what position we had been in. Clutching the wheel, I crouched in the lee corner of the cockpit. I remember going down under tons of solid water with the last impression of Dillaway's face framed in the porthole as he pumped out the oily bilge water to form a slick. There was no sense of direction or time, only a terrible helplessness and a feeling that possibly at last the cruise was over. It is hard to convey any appreciation of the power of such a sea, of the absolute insignificance of any human effort to withstand it. Choking and somewhat surprised that everything was not over, I came up, and as the masts lifted themselves out of the water, I looked instinctively to leeward, sensing what must have happened. And there, seventy-five feet or so from the ship, was Jim's close-cropped head, bobbing in an acre of froth. His sou'wester hanging from its cord around his neck, and the air still puffing out the yellow oilskin above his shoulders. At a time like that, you don't think consecutively. Your thoughts come in flashes like pictures on a movie screen. Jim was gone, but we could not leave him. I remembered the request as we left the dock at Bedeck that I look out for him, for he was all his father had left after the influenza epidemic. I remembered also the near tragedy at Drumhead in 1913, and jumped instinctively to the waterway to go after him. But with my heavy sea boots and strapped into a long oilskin coat over a number of thicknesses of clothing, I could not have stayed afloat, and there was no time to take things off. Then I thought of the lines astern, and yelled and waved to Jim, who, evidently, got the idea at the same time, for between the crests I could see that he was making for them. There was no possibility of manoeuvring the ship in such a sea. Fox, with the presence of mind of a real sailorman, had doused the trysail. It seems that he, too, had been torn from his hold on the belaying pins and had gone overboard, but had actually regained the ship by way of the mast, which he had caught as it came down on top of him. We were under bare poles, and as we drifted down past Jim, he succeeded in catching one of the lines. But our headway was still too great. Every time he came to the surface, he was further from the ship. I could see that the line he had was not the one with the bucket, and with every second I felt that he must reach the end of it. Finally, turning on his back with the line over his shoulder, he was able to hold fast, sort of planing along with his head out of the water, but we could see that he was tiring. If he slipped again, 
one of us would have to go down the line after him, but only as a last resort, for we should all be needed to get him aboard. Gradually, and with the utmost care so as not to break his hold, we hauled in on the line, and as we drew him close under the counter, he looked up with a half-choked grin and said, Well, Skipper, here I am. I think it was the most beautiful display of downright courage that I have ever seen, and it would have brought the tears had we had time for any such emotion. And then we found that the combined strength of the three of us was inadequate to the task of lifting him aboard. Clutching his oilskins, we held on, lifting him far out of the water as the stern rose, but only to assuse him again with every passing sea. We were choking him, but we dared not loosen our hold. I got the boat hook, caught his oilies with the barb, and finally succeeded in prying a leg over the gunwale. Grabbing it with both arms, I lay exhausted in the waterway, determined that at least we'd have that leg. The work of the last few hours and the effect of a recent diet composed largely of fried flour paste had weakened us, but we got him aboard at last and passed him down to Dillaway, who was still trapped in the cabin. Then we turned our attention to the sea anchor. Wallowing in the trough, with the seas breaking over us, we threw the bag overboard and waited anxiously for the line to tighten. We felt that possibly it was our last chance. As a strain came on the line, we could see the bag filled just beneath the surface off our starboard beam, but it seemed to have no effect on our position relative to the seas. The line stiffened like an iron rod, still no effect, and just as we were about to rig the storm jib on the mizzen, the rope parted, and left us still wallowing in the trough. But we had been in this position for at least a quarter of an hour, and although we were severely pounded by the seas, nothing had happened. I felt that the deckhouse would stand the drubbing, and if we could keep the water out there was still a chance, and so we went below and drew the slide. It was not until then that we realised just what had happened to the typhoon. The companionway steps lay athwart the cabin, the floorboards were up and great chunks of slag ballast lay against the chart case. Everything movable was in an oily mess on the lee side and the place looked a total wreck. We had been knocked down. There was no doubt about that, but it was not until we found a stove lid in Dillaway's bunk and discovered ashes from the bottom of the stove and the remains of food that had been in the sink sticking to the trunk above the charts on the starboard side that we realised that we had actually gone down approximately 120 degrees from the vertical. In reading over the log, I find several paragraphs written the following day by members of the crew giving their impressions of the knockdown. Here is Dillaway's story. While the sailors were outside preparing to put out the sea anchor, I remained below and took charge of the bilge pump. While standing at the pump and gazing out to the starboard porthole, there was a roar. The port was filled with water, pouring in, and the boat was suddenly flat on her starboard side. Because of our earlier experience, I knew instantly that she had been knocked down, and stupidly wondered if she was coming up this time. She failed to move for an instant, and I had the fleeting feeling of being trapped. Then she slowly sagged up, and I turned to survey the damage. It looked like a wreck. Flooring heaving up and mixed with ballast, everything from the port side in a confused mass. I had some thought of starting to clear up, but I could not seem to see any place to begin. I then turned and looked out of the port and saw Mr. Nutting, Charles and Fox tugging at a rope over the stern and Jim way back in the water. 
The situation flashed over me and my first thought was, I wonder if anyone released the trisel. The stairs were on top of the heap, so I jumped on the engine flywheel and tried to open the hatch, but it was stuck tight. Pounding with my fists and head failed to move it. I looked out again. They were still pulling and Jim was nearer, but it was a hard pull, and I realised that another hand was needed. I renewed my tack on the hatch when I heard them shouting, Hang on, Jim! During successive views and frenzied attacks on the hatch, I saw them reach over for Jim and they seemed unable to get him aboard. A feeling of unutterable despair came over me at the thought of my inability to lend a hand, and I tried a lump of ballast on the slide, but still with no result. When I next looked out, Jim was in the waterway, and I felt as weak as a rag. Manson Dillaway When we went below after the sea anchor had carried away, we were surprised that the motion was not nearly so bad as we might have expected, considering our position in the trough of the sea. Every now and then, of course, there was the crash of a sea, but such things had long since ceased to be a novelty. When the crest flopped down on us, the shock actually seemed less severe, probably because we had no way on and consequently yielded to the force of the blow. After a superficial cleaning up of the cabin, we ransacked the food locker and prepared a sketchy meal from the last small can of beef, the last can of vegetables and the few remaining crackers. There was also a little soup left, and this combination, the items of which we had been holding out for an emergency, was a grateful change from our recent monotonous diet of fried flour and water. A bottle of Domecq cognac from Spain, which I was saving for some sufferer from the constitutional amendment, was broken out, and we sang everything we could think of out of sheer joy at having Jim back again. As I think back on it now, it was a wonderful picture. The dimly lighted cabin, the wreckage, the songs punctuated by the crashing blows from breaking seas, and through it all the constant humming of the steel shrouds, sounding through the fabric of the boat like the drone note on a bagpipe. We lighted the new hurricane-proof riding light we had obtained in England, pulled the slide and tried to lash it to the main boom, but it was blown out immediately by the force of the wind. Again and still again we tried it without success, and finally let it go at that, for, after all, the chance of being run down in a sea that must have forced the largest liner to heave to was very slight. Then we all turned in and slept soundly. Our experience in lying safely in the trough during the storm of November 17th opens up an interesting line of speculation on the best method of handling small boats in a heavy sea. If you are running before it, the strength of the wind naturally seems less, and this fact may cause you to carry on longer than you should. The right time to heave to is a question, and just how to heave to is another. My experience with sea anchors leads me to believe that if the boat's head can be kept into the wind, it is more comfortable and safer to lie to a sea anchor than to heave to, say, under a trysail. Even under a trysail, the tendency is to work to windward, whereas lying to a sea anchor, the boat gives with the seas and gradually goes to leeward. But if there is any difficulty in keeping the boat's head to the wind, I think the safest move is to do as we did and allow her to take care of herself. It is surprising how well a boat can come through if left to her own devices. This would be dangerous, of course, with open boats, although dories have been picked up at sea, their bottoms encrusted with sea growth, 
indicating that they have been adrift for months and still showing no evidence of having taken water aboard. Captain Tom Day speaks of having allowed the Detroit to lie broadside to the seas during his trip across the Atlantic in her, and whilst this practice would be dangerous with a lightly constructed boat without ballast and with light deck structures, it seems to be thoroughly practical with a strong ballasted craft so designed that the water may be kept out. The discomfort due to the motion seems to be less in this position than it is when hove to, due to the fact that the boat yields to the breaking seas easily instead of resisting them. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast and, of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.